0: Election Day 2020 has come and gone, but many races are still too close to call across the country, including here in Kansas. Malin votes and provisional ballots continue to be counted as we await certification of results in a record breaking election. I'm Noah Taborda, and welcome to this week's election edition of the Kansas Reflector Podcast. Joining me is Davis Hammond. Davis is the president of Loudlight, a youth focused organization fostering increased civic engagement in Kansas. Welcome to the podcast, Davis. Hey, Noah, thank you for having me. Glad to have you and excited to break down what we've seen so far election-wise and what we can expect in the coming weeks. So, Election Day, which is, especially this year, it feels more of like a misnomer given how long people have been voting for. It really felt like an election season. And it has been in the past, but this time I think people really took notice of that. As far as the numbers go, it was a pretty record-breaking one, 831,083 advanced ballots cast over 90% return rate on by-mail ballots, and an increase of 100,000 registered voters here in Kansas from 2018. So what jumped out to you most from the general election?
1: For the general election, and really just this entire year, the amount of engagement, right? We did have record-breaking turnout. We won't have those final numbers for, you know, still at least a month. To know everyone who voted on election day and everything, but it seems like we really broke broke records, even from 2008, which had been a record-breaking year. Before
0: we go any further, could you tell our listeners a little more about Loudlight
1: and what the 2020 election period looked like for you all? So, in 2014, Kansas had one of the lowest youth turnouts and registration rates in the entire country, and I was looking at that data and studying it, and I really decided to just focus all of my attention on it. And that's when Loud Light was founded to try to reverse that trend. Um, So to try to get more people, more young people, registered to vote and participating in the election. And there are, you know, the things that we know about, like youth apathy and just traditional barriers to participating. But also in that time in Kansas, uh, Secretary of State, then Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, have put up several um, voter barriers that disproportionately impacted young people were later found to be unconstitutional voter suppression. Um, But so we, we kind of were fighting against voter suppression. We were working on college campuses to get young people registered um, and just really just try to get people engaged in more local and state politics too. Right. Cause we always talk to people who think their vote doesn't matter and You know, it's funny to say it doesn't matter in a presidential election where right now we're several days after the election and we still don't know who the winner is. Right. Um, But in a place like Kansas, we generally know where the presidential election is going. Right. And I'm like, well, your vote might not matter that much for that. But, you know, in these state legislature races, right, the state house, these are the people who decide, you know, college tuition, things like that, and getting young people to pay attention to those races because those are always decided by tiny margins just like in this election where there's several uh, state house races where we don't know who's won yet.
0: We'll get back to the youth vote in a moment, but you know this is so unprecedented. Being in the middle of a, a pandemic, we are in a health crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis. I mean, it feels like really a crux of so many different things. How did that kind of change
1: what 2020 was like for you all? So democracy is social, right? And it's usually being out there, knocking on doors, meeting people at events, right? When we talk about registering new voters, this is something that was extremely hard to deal with because once you're registered to vote, right, you show up in data. We can find you. We can try to contact you and get you to vote. But when you're not registered to vote, inherently, you're not in the data. We can't find you. And that's why we do, normally, we'd be running around on college campuses and we'd be at concerts, you know, and in 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 downtowns getting just catching people where they are right and helping them get registered we couldn't do that this year so we had to do all sorts of uh, just really creative things on digital organizing on you know pulling together all sorts of different types of data to try to find like really kind of try to like target people who weren't registered Um, but overwhelmingly i mean it went really well we were able to still register thousands of people build a lot of engagement but you know even if it's texting and phone calling and digital organizing nothing will really ever compare to that in person face to face catching someone who's not registered who's not engaged and having a conversation um so i'm glad with you know what we were able to accomplish but i'm still i think everyone misses like social interactions right but it especially hurts in election time when it's so important for us to have those kind of um you know, sometimes like intimate and personal conversations about what do we want the future to look like, and you just can't have the same experience when, you know, it's over, over the phone.
0: So getting back to the
1: youth vote, it feels like every
0: election, and I should make it clear here that I myself am young, so my frame of reference may be narrower a bit. Uh, every election we have conversations about why more young people aren't voting. First of all, can you define the youth vote as best as possible uh, and then can you talk a little bit more about any trends or outcomes we saw with younger Kansans this election?
1: So defining the youth vote, there's a lot of different definitions for this, um, right? Some based on generation or like year of age. We generally consider it, you know, either 18 to 29 years old on election day or 18 to 34 um also, people talk about you know gen z or zoomers depending on what phrase you use um and then millennials right so millennials are as old as like thirty nine in this election right so there's also a definition that says everyone eighteen to thirty nine is is the is a youth vote, and that would be gen z and millennials so yeah, there's all sorts of ways to define that um and to kind of separate to what is the youth vote versus which is versus what are first-time voters, right? Which are usually those like, you know, 18 to 21-year-olds, it's their first election. What was amazing about this year, and at least in some of our initial research, is it's not just that a lot of those first-time voters might have been like 18 to 21, right? It's a lot of people even older, into their later 20s, into their 30s, who are maybe voting for their first time ever in this election, which is, you know, really exciting and great. Again, like the turnout levels were really high. We won't know the final results. But whenever we talk about youth vote being low or high, you have to keep in mind that that's relative. Even like groundbreaking, like, put off the fireworks, youth vote was so high, we'll be like, maybe we hit 40%, right, you know? Whereas verse, uh, you know, if you're 60 years old, you're gonna vote, you know, over 65% of the time. Generally speaking, like before this election, like a rule of thumb will be your age is about your statistical likelihood of voting, right? Like 75-year-olds vote 75% of the time, 18-year-olds generally vote like 18% of the time. So we're headed in the right direction, but there's still, you know, even if we break all the records, there's still so much room to grow.
0: You know, I know there's so many numbers still to be crunched, so much data to analyze that we don't have our hands on quite yet, and we will in the coming weeks. But from what we've seen thus far, were there any trends that are particularly concerning to you in this election, whether it be turnout, registration,
1: what have you? So the first trend that's always concerning to me, right, this is like what, what drives me, it's that number one barrier to voting, which is registration. So Kansas has a three-week three registration deadline, meaning that you have to be registered or you have to have updated your registration at least three weeks before the election. Uh, former Secretary of State Chris Kobach actually created that. He passed that. It used to only be be two weeks. So this is the longest voter registration cutoff, um, I believe, in Kansas history over the last decade. Um, The issue with that is most sane people um, don't follow politics that deeply until it's like, okay, it's time for me to sit down, do my homework and vote. And then it's too late. And, you know, in research in previous elections that we found a ton of those people that get shut out are young people, right? Who aren't registered, and then there's no way for them to register. There's also people, um, for example, if you were just sworn as a U.S. citizen, sworn in as a U.S. citizen, if you uh, if you had a felony conviction, right, and you finished probation um, after the deadline but before the election, there are entire categories of Kansans that it's illegal for them to get registered to vote before the deadline, but then they can no longer register to vote before the election, right? Like they fall in this gap. Um, and we, you know, we know that that's thousands of people that we can see who cast provisional ballots in this category. We don't know how many thousands of others there are who just go in, are told you're not registered and turn around. Uh, that's one of the biggest, uh, barriers for sure. As I mentioned at the top of the
0: podcast, many races, uh, here in Kansas, nationwide, have very narrow margins. So when people go on the Secretary of State's website, they pull up the results, they're looking at everything. What do these results mean? And how much stock should voters be putting in the results thus far in these very contested races?
1: So let me put it this way, on election night, well, I think many um, Americans, Kansans, just many people were like freaking out all night. Um, I'm sure you being a member of the media had to stay up all night. Um, I mean, I think I went to bed at like 1030, right? Because I was just like, there's like, we're not going to know these results. And there are just so many votes that are counted after the fact. Um, Election night results are great whenever people just clearly win. Right. Whenever it's like, you know, there's just no. I mean, we saw that in the the U.S. Senate race here. Right. By the time it was like midnight, it's just so it was very clear that Marshall had won. Now, on these more local races, uh, like state House, state Senate, um, the margins are way tighter. Right. There's just few voters there, fewer voters there. And we still have several days where mail ballots can come in and then we have entire, you know, the entire category of provisional ballots can't be counted until the canvas, which is one to two weeks after the election. Um, And because I do so much work and research and I've done lawsuits like around provisional data. I just kind of think it's laughable in these close races whenever people are like declaring victory or being like it's going this way i'm like there's five votes that's going to change back and forth a dozen times before we get to the end right uh so i mean i think a lot of people have said it but patience is really key here um we've never actually known the results on election night like ever (laughs) Um, but people are just so used to hearing those narratives um And then they forget, right? People forget that even in 2018 in the governor's primary where it was Chris Kobach versus Jeff Collier, that had gone on, you know, for a month almost. I mean, there was like a whole extended period of time where for weeks we were all engaged in it. And yet some people seem to have forgotten that that even happened. The election's just not over until it's over. You mentioned the county
0: canvas, and I'm sure many of our listeners are used to seeing that projected winner on election night and just accepting that as the final result Can you explain what and when the county canvass is and how it affects the results in an average year versus how it
1: might this year? Here's the short timeline, right? While people are mailing their ballots back, just throughout the entire, you know, month that they're mailing them back before, as those are coming in, some people miss their signature, right? Or their signatures mismatch. And the county now, by law, starting last year, um, the county is trying to contact them and let them cure it. So there are kind of challenge ballots, provisional ballots, that are being cured all the time along the way. You know, way before even Election Day and after Election Day. Then Election Day happens on a Tuesday. The next day by Wednesday is when we're getting all those mail ballots that came in the day before. And this process keeps on going until Friday evening. So on Friday evening after the election, we now have all the mail ballots in and we're able to count them. Now, some of those mail ballots became provisional ballots because they were you know, challenged and haven't been cured yet. And there's all sorts of other provisional ballots. These can be things like you show up to the poll and you forgot to bring your photo ID, right? And they're like, hey, you, have, you, know, you need to send us a picture of your photo ID so we can count it. You cast a provisional. Then if you send in your photo ID, your vote will be counted at the canvas. If you don't, it won't. Tons of provisional ballots are things like uh, just poll worker error. Right. They didn't see your name in the poll book. So you cast a provisional ballot. They get back to the office, realize, oh, Noah was there. Right. We need to count his vote. The vast majority of provisional ballots will be counted, but none of them that are declared provisional can be counted until the canvas, which happens. You know, this can be the Monday after the election, six days or up to, you know, the Monday after that. So up to 13 days after and depending on what county you're in uh, decides when the canvas is, they all do it at different times. Um, and at that, they actually have all the categories of provisionals. You know, they're like, this stack is photo ID issues that were fixed. Here's photo ID issues that weren't fixed. This is people who moved inside the county. This is people who moved outside the county. This is signature mismatch. This is blah, blah, blah. And they have all the categories of provisional ballots, which is thousands, by the way. In Johnson County alone, we know there's over 11,000 provisionals, right? Plenty this year are people who it's like, these are people who requested a mail ballot, And then either their mail ballot didn't come or they just got antsy and they went in to vote early, you know, or went in to vote on election day. And so they're like, we can, you know, they can count your provisional ballot if you didn't also return your mail ballot, right? Because you can't double vote, Um, which is why, by the way, we have this whole process. All of these provisional processes, everything that happens after election day, this is all for election security to make sure no one voted twice and to make sure that every eligible vote can be counted. Then the canvas finally happens um, and then they determine which provisionals can count and then those are added to the total, right? So a week to two weeks after the election, you might have thousands more votes. Like in Johnson County, we're probably gonna have like, you know, 9,000, 10,000 more votes added after that point. And then they can request a recount. Um, And then if that that goes to recount, you know, we all know how that goes, that, you know, it could go either way, they could find nothing, they could find something. And then they might have to re-canvas the results and then finally it goes to a state board of canvassers and that's where the lieutenant governor um, the attorney general and uh, the secretary of state they sit down and they like certify all the county's final results then once that happens there are three days where anyone can object to the outcome right they can say actually this was all legal because this entire category of votes should have been counted and they weren't and the reason i bring this up is i actually objected to the election outcome <laughs> In the 2018 primary, um, in part because of provisional ballots that were rejected for signature issues and they had never tried to call the people and let them cure it. Right. And that's part of why we got a law passed, because that was that was likely illegal. I mean, I would argue that I would argue that the 2018 primary uh, for a governor was unconstitutional, but we didn't have to go there because the state you know, went ahead and went in the direction of fixing the problem through the legislature. All of this takes us to uh, basically the very, very end of November, right? It's usually right before December 1st that we finally know the real certified results of the election. So we have a long time to go. It's
0: just <laughs> a nice reminder, I think, here for voters that take a chill pill, you know, sit back and just wait for the results to come in. You know, I want to turn to something that's always front and center on a lot of voters' minds, and something I know you are always on alert for, and that's obstructions to voting, voter suppression, intimidation. These are things that concerns have been mounting for uh, in a particularly volatile election. It's very early, and I know there is likely a lot of research and analysis to be done on your part, but
1: what concerns did you find in that regard so far? I mean, there's... So many concerns we documented, right? I mean, I would say overwhelmingly, I think the election went very smooth in Kansas, right? All things considered. There's always going to be some problems though. Uh, We know, for example, at least in Sedgwick County, um, we know that there was a a fake voter registration effort, right? People were being called on the phone and told here you can register to vote over the phone. You can't, right? Um, Which again, this goes to my previous concern of there are people who probably were victims of identity theft and then they were disenfranchised by the state of Kansas, right? Like they thought they were getting registered. You can't register just over the phone. Um, Anyways, that was one of them. We had heard voter intimidation concerns. I actually will um, definitely like applaud the Secretary of State's office. I know that they put in a lot of effort. There were groups that wanted to be like unofficial like poll watchers, right? And I'm saying that with quotes right now there's a legitimate role of poll watchers and then there are people who go kind of armed with the intention to intimidate and i think the secretary of state's office did a good job of kind of handling and letting cooler heads prevail on that Um, but that doesn't you know solve every problem Um, it's a common issue where you know poll workers are even attacked right are assaulted at polling places we don't have that data yet but that happens usually every year there are just all sorts of problems like that On a voter suppression effort, I mean, I know at least there were some poll site issues that we dealt with, right? There were poll site issues that had shifted around um, due to COVID-19. And I right now I'm researching some counties that I think did a very poor job of informing voters that their polling sites had changed. And so we, we got plenty of complaints where people couldn't figure out their polling site on election day. We also have just the inconsistency in how elections are run in Kansas. The secretary of state is kind of just like a guiding force, but really the 105 counties, every county runs their own election. And so they all, uh, you know, some of them are really good at it. Some of them are not great at it. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, who's in charge, uh, who's that county clerk or that elections commissioner, but also the budget, right? The state doesn't fund our elections, the counties do. And so you have these cash-strapped small counties that are just struggling to fund an election in a pandemic. And there's some negative consequences from that. Like, you know, some voters got plenty of opportunities to, you know, request a mail ballot, return it at drop boxes. Other voters had very limited opportunities, right? The county might've had no drop boxes, only one that's inside a building that's only open, open during business hours. Just a whole mirage of kind of like, varying degrees of concerns that that need to be addressed. But again, overwhelmingly, I would say, I think we did a lot better than we've done in past years. With the little time we have left,
0: I wanted to ask you about voting options for those who have COVID-19 in Kansas. Voters with a temporary illness can apply for an advanced ballot up until polls close on election day, if I'm not mistaken. But it seems like... That information wasn't spread around quite as well as it should have. It seemed like a lot of people didn't know and were instead opting for curbside voting. Can you kind of tell the listeners why that is problematic and
1: why that was a bit concerning to you? So it was, you know, right after the the cutoff, which is a week before the election, or the normal cutoff for mail ballots, that we're looking at this and realized um, there was really no clear guidance, right, from the Secretary of State's office, um, from most counties. I won't say all, but from most counties. Um, and I just put together a graphic, you know, for a loud light that explained it, you know, or if you have COVID, if you're quarantined, like this is your option. You can, you can have someone assigned to assist you and they can go pick up, you know, essentially like an emergency mail ballot so that you can, you know, vote from home and you don't have to expose anyone. Um, and it was spreading and I had all sorts of people contacting me like, oh, I I helped several people vote because of this. And and this person and this person wouldn't have voted if you hadn't posted that graphic. And some of the people were like, oh, I'm a poll worker. Like I had never been trained on this, right? And I certainly didn't see information really from the Secretary of State's office on this. And that really concerned me, right? Like there there was a clear solution to this, right? And it's the best option. It's not the option that says go vote curbside and potentially risk, you know, letting a poll worker come out, get exposed to the virus, and then bring it into the polling place. And why wasn't that spread more, right? There's, I think there's a lot of information gaps that we had that just would have made so much sense for the Secretary of State and counties to do a better job of putting that information out.
0: Just to make sure we wrap this up in a nice little bow for everybody out there, can you once again clarify... You know, when we might expect some results that people can say, all right, now I know what's happened. And also, just what is your advice for Kansas voters over the next couple of weeks, just so that they don't become overwhelmed by this election season?
1: I think we'll have, you know, a really good picture, pretty clear result by November 16th, right? That will be when all the county canvases are over and we should really know what the result is. It's possible, you know, if lawsuits get involved and stuff, this could go to the middle of December, but I really think, you know, November 16th, 17th, we'll know all the outcomes. I mean, like everything else, right? Take a deep breath, (laughs) realize what the dynamics are of your county government, of your city government, of your state government. Um, and get involved, right? Like the worst thing you can do is think that voting was the end. Voting is just the beginning. There's newly elected officials. It's your duty as a citizen to engage with your elected officials. They work for you, right? Like make them work for you. Let them know that you are their boss. Um, and that doesn't have to be hostile, right? You you want them to understand what your personal concerns are, the issues your family are going through. Um, that really like this whole thing, it shouldn't be a this big wave where we all get involved for a minute around elections and everyone turns off. Being a citizen is a, you know, it is a 24-7, you know, every single day of the year you engage with your community to try to make it better, right? And this is really just, just should be the start of you getting engaged.
0: Well Davis, this election season has been full of twists and turns and likely quite confusing for many so I appreciate you clearing up some lingering questions that I'm sure many have. I know there is so much more analysis and research into this election to come in the next few weeks, so I'll let you get back to it. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Davis Hammett is the president of Loudlight. You can find more about his organization at www.loudlight.org. I'm your host, Noah Taborda. Tim Carpenter will be back in the host chair next week. Until then, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Kansas Reflector podcast.